Have you ever found yourself in a new position and asked yourself, shit, am I qualified to do this? Well, you're most definitely not alone. As millennials find themselves in leadership positions and shake up how we all work, play, and simply live, it's becoming more and more common for us to ask ourselves this question. But honestly, is anyone ever really qualified to do what they're doing? Or are they simply making it up as they go? Welcome to Am I Qualified to Do This? A podcast for anyone who has asked themselves the question, am I qualified to do this? The answer might feel like a no, but your life experiences have made you more than qualified to take on the task and do it better than anyone else. Holy shit, it's episode number one. Before I introduce my first guest, I want to go ahead and just say this has been the hardest labor of love I have experienced. Imposter syndrome kicked my ass for several months before I could even begin to record these episodes. So big shout out to my family, friends, and mentors who kept me going. I am personally excited about my first guest. She is an amazing writer, singer, and activist. I'm beyond honored to have come across her in her beautiful soul three, almost four years ago, and we just kept running into one another. I finally stopped silently following her on social media and spoke real words to her, and it's been one of the best things that I've done. Let me introduce you to Stephanie Drinka, founder and editor-in-chief of Visible Magazine, a magazine elevating the voices and work of those from underrepresented communities whose voices are often overlooked by traditional media outlets, and communications director for the Dallas Truth Racial Healing and Transformation, an organization that is community-driven vehicle for change to transform the community and eventually the country. Hearing all these accolades and accomplishments, you're probably wondering, why is Stephanie a guest on a podcast about imposter syndrome? But that's the thing. Imposter syndrome is something that everyone experiences. So let's dig in and find out how she turned her no into a hell yes. So hi, Stephanie. I'm uh-huh. super excited to have you on today. Good morning. Thank you. This is what I was looking forward to all week. So I'm excited. I'm, <laughs> I'm so glad. Um, so as I kind of told you before, this is the podcast, Am I Qualified to Do This? So we're here to talk about um, your moment of Am I Qualified to Do This and how you push through. Um, so AKA call- every day. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, So will will you tell us a little about yourself, where you're from, where'd you go to school, what do you do now, all that wonderfulness? Okay, Um, I guess I'll start at the beginning. My name is Stephanie Drinka. I was born in South Korea and adopted at the age of three months. Um, My parents lived in Chicago, so we lived there for two years. My dad worked for American Airlines, so we moved from Chicago to um, Marietta, Georgia. I lived there till I was 10, moved to South Lake, Texas. uh, And for those outside the area, very um, traditionally white, um, middle to upper class, very homogenous community there and realized I wanted to have a more diverse experience in college. So I went back to Chicago, um, graduated from DePaul University with a major in communications and minors in Asian American studies and women's and gender studies. And uh, there's a long history of between then and now, but where I am today, I'm the communications director for a nonprofit organization called Dallas Truth Racial Healing and Transformation, as well as the founder and editor of an online publication called Visible Magazine. So, wow, you do a lot, uh, which is why I love you, uh, because everything is kind of based on lifting up voices that might not be heard otherwise and seeking justice and different things like that, which means you're one of my biggest idols. Um, just kind of fangirling out that I get to interview you today. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up in the job that you're doing today, mm-hmm. either um, Visible or the TRHT project, whichever one or both, honestly, mm-hmm. we love both that you want to share. Okay, so I would say my the first initial step that I took towards this journey was back in college, um, my senior year, they asked us to do a project where we decided what we were going to be in the, in 10 years. And we had to do this presentation and do all of this research. And my kind of 10 year vision was that I was going to be a director at a nonprofit. There was nothing else more specific, not like what kind of director, what kind of nonprofit, like the work that I would be doing, but that was my goal. Um, and I think I shared that goal 
with my family and they were, you know, when people hear the word nonprofit, they automatically think like no income and like no <laughs> salary. And so it was very much a conversation of that's a nice thought, but like, is there something else that you could maybe do? <laughs> Uh, and so I kind of went down the traditional path of I worked in marketing, um, a weird kind of niche of the industry called um, brand licensing. So I worked for a company that um, designed like Superman hats and, and video game T-shirts and stuff like that. And uh, from there, went to work for a very small um, Internet marketing agency that did website design, search engine optimization. I was brought on to um, help with the social media aspect of things and uh, worked there for a bit uh, with a lot of small businesses. So air conditioning uh, companies who wanted to rank for like Dallas AC and, you know, plumbers and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it just wasn't very stimulating creatively. And so I started a blog on the side and uh, was sort of inspired from my time in the brand licensing, like nerdy, techie area and I did a blog called Geek Glam and so I would you know it was a mix of fashion like nerdy things technology um, and I loved it and it was really just um, one for creativity I loved photography I loved writing but also to test out some of my theories about internet marketing and SEO and you know can I get this page to rank what do I need to do to the design of the site to make it more optimized um, and through that, I caught the attention of some people that worked at a company called Reward Style, um, based in Dallas, one of the first and probably largest influencer marketing affiliate networks. Um, their public-facing brand is like to know it, and their claim to fame is they help bloggers monetize their content. So whether it's on their blog or on their Instagram, bloggers can recommend products and earn commission off of those sales. And so I was brought on to um, work with the top bloggers in the world, essentially, um, and help them optimize their online presence, design websites for them, and just give strategy and kind of overall feedback on their, on their websites. Um, so I was there for a while, loved the idea of what I did, did not love the impact that I was making and that all of the knowledge was kind of going to um, increasing the revenue and the income of people who already started with a lot of <laughs> revenue and income and were not necessarily using their platforms um, to make a, a, a change in the world um, besides selling things. So I thought, um, you know, it's time to give back. I'm going to go the nonprofit route. And I found one in Dallas that really spoke to me because they worked with young people and the arts and STEM and um, just learning and creativity. Um, was there for a while as their communications manager. It was that experience opened my eyes because I assumed, you know, leaving the fashion technology world and going to nonprofit, especially a nonprofit that works with um, black and brown kids um, and like knows, you know, right and wrong, it would be completely different night and day. But I also <laughs> noticed those, those, uh, the same things that happened at the other company where it was white leadership, um, you know, kind of determining the outcome of the work, um, not necessarily considering not being proximate to what's actually happening in the world, um, that trickles into the nonprofit and the philanthropy world as well. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it got to a point where, you know, if I wanted to advance in my career, like become a, a director, like kind of work my way up the nonprofit ladder, it would move me away from actually being out in the community, like doing the work, seeing what's happening, talking to people. And I, I couldn't, resign myself to the fact that I would be stuck in board meetings for the rest of my career <laughs> and not actually making that difference and seeing the change. So I went off on my own um, and I was working as a communications consultant um, and uh, Jerry Hawkins, the executive director of Dallas Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation was one of my first clients. And um, I was in a very fortunate position where I could be selective about who I worked with. And that was what I, what I didn't want was to have to say yes to everything and to get overloaded again and to be working with people that I felt kind of like internally icky about. And 
I mean, everything that Jerry stands for, if you hear him speak, if you see him like get like impassioned about Dallas history and racism, like, you know, he's the real deal. Like the things he's saying, it's not because he wants to run for office someday. It's because he believes this like in his like core. And I just wanted to do everything that I could to help. And so they were my, really my main client for, um, for a year. Uh, and the opportunity came to join them recently full time as a communications director. And I said yes in a heartbeat because, you know, I've been, I've been working with several nonprofits like over this course and he's the one that is driving like real change forward. He's not afraid to say the hard things and, you know, get in some hot water at, at times. And he's never made me feel like I had to cower to kind of the, the comfort of white um, donors mm -hmm. uh, were. And TRHT's framework, a big uh, tenant of it is narrative change. And so as a writer and as a, as a communications person, that idea of changing who tells history and whose story gets told completely aligns with like what I feel like is my life's purpose. So that's what brought me here in this particular role today. And it goes along with visible as well. Yeah, that's awesome. And honestly, uh, shameless plug, if you haven't checked out TRHT's um, social media, it's Dallas Truth Racial Healing and Transformation um, on all the social media channels. And you should definitely check it out because they are truly amazing. Um, I follow them. Jerry is amazing. And honestly, uh, Stephanie has done a great job really um, amping up their social media and making sure that their reach is far and wide and the truths are being shared everywhere. Um, thank so thank you for all your hard work on that, because I, um, when I previously worked at Community Foundation of Texas, I was so excited when that grant was given to us by um, the Kellogg Foundation, yeah. and I was so excited when Jerry came on, because I could see he was different. He walked a different walk than everyone else that I had yeah. seen in the nonprofit community, so I'm so excited that you're a part of their team. <laughs> Um, so will you tell us a little bit about the op-ed project, because mm -hmm. I know that's a lot about, um, a lot of where some of your visible stuff started mm -hmm. and kind of how you got your voice out there. Yeah, so the Op-Ed Project is a nonprofit based out of New York, their national organization, and their overall mission is to um, uplift the, the underrepresented voices in media through op-ed writing and thought leadership. Um, and they do this with, you know, kind of various workshops, but their intensive program is called Public Voices, and it's a, it's a fellowship anywhere between three months to a year. They've done these fellowships at different institutions, colleges, foundations, and the Boone Foundation um, currently funds uh, a fellowship in Dallas. So uh, it's Dallas Public Voices through the Op-Ed Project, and it's uh, for um, women, women of color, uh, leadership kind of roles, um, either a nonprofit or um, kind of some sort of social impact uh, setting. And it's uh, an application process. Um, and then ours is three months long. And the, the ultimate goal is to write two op-eds during this time. And you're given access to kind of their education framework. You have a mentor editor that's uh, in the industry, whether it's an editor, a writer, journalist, and they help you through the editing and the pitching process, and also give tools to amplify your voice like further, like what happens after the op-ed, interviews, TED, TED Talks, um, expert testimonies, kind of, um, etc. And so it was right after I left um, my previous nonprofit organization, Big Thought, and it was Kind of interesting timing. It was I, one of the reasons that I left was because a board member had said something to me that really, it really changed how I saw myself there and the work that I needed to do. And it was sort of this conversation where she told me, "Well, we know that you're you're good at social media and you're good at photography, but I think we really need someone on the team that's a strong writer." And um, and she said to me, like, I think we're in agreement and we'll go back and we'll tell them this. Um, it was like kind of in the conversation of like a potential promotion. Um, mm. And I just sat and I like, 
I didn't even know what to say because I was so taken aback. Like but photography had already always been like a hobby and social media, even website was always sort of just this, um, it was like a vehicle to get my story out. Writing had always been the core of like what I loved and what I did. And I had, you know, I had never been told that I wasn't a strong writer, like, <laughs> Like, not to humble brag, but it would usually be the opposite. My mom was a librarian, so, like, reading and writing was, like, kind of ingrained in me since childhood. And so I realized I had worked myself into a position and kind of shrunk to fit it and shrunk to fit what, you know, just what was expected from me. Um, and I wasn't thriving anymore. But at the same time, I had someone saying that I wasn't considered a strong writer at a time that I'm getting this invitation to apply for a writing fellowship. And so I just sit, I was sitting there and, you know, as terrible as I felt at that weird time, because, you know, when you apply, you have to say what organization you represent. And like, no, I was no longer officially affiliated with an organization. I was on my own. Um, uh, Jerry, being the sweetheart that he was, said I could put, you know, a visual storyteller for Dallas TRHT on there. But it was kind of like a lot of people were like, what is a visual storyteller? What does that even mean? Because I'm applying with CEOs and EDs. Um, but, you know, I, I kept hearing her voice in the back of my head and it was almost like, okay, I'm going to prove you wrong. Like, if, if you're going to come at me and say that I'm not a strong writer, then I'm gonna do everything in my power to show you that that's not true. And so I filled out the application and I was just sort of like, well, it's out there, we'll see. And, and I ended up getting into the, to the fellowship. Um, also around that same time, um, a HuffPost editor had found my blog and a piece that I had written about National Adoption Month. And she asked me if I would consider kind of using that and repurposing it, adding some to it for a HuffPost um, op-ed article. And so it was a really cool time where I was like feeling completely not confident about my writing skills, but I was doing things that I had to kind of pull myself together and just like do it. And, uh, it ended up completely changing my career trajectory, like how I see myself in the world. And, you know, I just think back to that one, like fateful coffee uh, meeting with that board member. And like, you know, it, sometimes you need to feel pretty low to like realize it's time to, to pick yourself back up and like just do the work and show them. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I know that moment when the HuffPost reached out to see if you could kind of rework some of your uh, your blog that you had already been mm -hmm. already done to see if it could be a, Huff, a HuffPost op-ed was mm -hmm. kind of one of those big moments mm -hmm. where it just qualified it, it really put you in another level because it's so hard for some of us to get published honestly did you have a am I qualified to do this moment is, is my voice the one that should be had or anything like that Oh yeah, um, I think it was when I started doing research about it um, because you know I had always written so many like personal things, but when I like with the op-ed, you actually it's hard because you have to include enough data to reach kind of the people that think that way. They want information, they want proof and evidence. And, you know, my my sob story is not enough to convince them to change their mind, and um, and so that was when I was like, gosh, I haven't done any like extensive research on the subject. I haven't spoken that you know, I was looking at some of the other articles that have been posted by, by author, like published authors or professors or scholars, but a lot of them weren't adoptees themselves. A lot of them were just interested in the field or they were social workers or experts kind of in that realm. And, um, you know, the reason that I had actually written the blog post that she found me um, from was because during National Adoption Month, a lot of the bloggers that I had previously worked with, um, some of them are adoptive parents. And so, I was seeing all of their posts about adoption month and kind of pictures of their kids. And I, and I, out of curiosity, just Googled national adoption month and adoption blog. And it was all parents. There was nothing mm. from adult adoptees. 
And um, so then I wrote mine and it started ranking and that's how she found it. So writing that HuffPost article for me, it was, uh, yes, it was very intimidating, but it was also the knowledge that HuffPost, like that article is going to outrank some of the adoptive parents that are saying things that I don't agree with. And so it's a great opportunity. <laughs> I just like, I can't mess this up. Like I might, this might be my one shot to like get this word out there. And so I really put everything that like poured my heart and soul into that one. Um, and when it was finally published, you know, I actually, instead of being like super excited, I was terrified. Um, I was saying things that weren't popular opinions. It didn't kind of go along with the fairy tale, like happily ever after adoption, like forever family. It was, and it was still pretty tempered because in the back of my mind, I just kept thinking, oh, my parents are going to read this. My friends are going to read this. Um, and I did get some comments like, oh, you're so ungrateful. Like your parents must be so ashamed and like it terrible things like never read the comments gosh I, I learned that <laughs> lesson the hard way so it, it was a very big moment but the weight of it was also like it was I, I it took me out for a couple of days because I was like I you know I, I know that I should be celebrating this but also like I know that I'm saying things that people aren't necessarily ready to hear so it's kind of a weird uh, a weird effect um, but I'm happy about it now. That's awesome. I'm glad that you used kind of that energy of feeling as though maybe you weren't the voice that should have been heard mm -hmm. to motivate you even more to be like, wait, I am because there's no other voices like mine. Mm -hmm. And I definitely understand that whole, once you get over that, I'm qualified to do this moment and it finally gets out there and you're like, oh God, people are seeing this, people can <laughs> respond. <laughs> yeah, it's out there. There's no take backs. <laughs> gonna but rewind. Were, oh yeah. <laughs> And I know adoption is such a controversial mm -hmm. topic because there's so many perspectives about it just from kind of the adoptee's relationship with their family, their mm -hmm. um, birth families and their actual families and society's perceptions and adoptee parents' perceptions. And it's just layers and layers and layers. So you were just so brave to share your experience. <laughs> but I honestly think it's opened up a door for more people to feel comfortable sharing their experiences mm -hmm. with it yeah um will you talk a little bit about how this first op-ed that you had published kind of helped you get this idea that there needs to be a more diverse voice out in the community and how that helped um, bring about visible uh, magazine? yeah yeah so um I, shortly a couple months after that first op-ed was published was when the fellowship started um and so the the very first exercise that they had us go through um was about credibility and being an expert and i was again kind of on my own for the first time um sitting in a room with these like incredible like women leaders like that i had followed and admired for years that like seemed so untouchable and unreachable um my like one of my personal like heroes that i had never had like a lot of interaction with in person but i followed her online and just like was obsessed with like Michelle Kinder, who was formerly at <laughs> formerly at uh, Momentous Institute, and I'm like sitting in a room with them, and then I have to get up, stand up, and talk about why I'm the most expert at something. And I was like, well, I mean, I I can't talk about like being the expert in like youth development or social emotional learning with like Michelle Kinder next to me, um, or like social justice with Jolie Angel Robinson next to me yeah. on the other side. So I stood up and I said, like, I'm the expert in transracial Korean adoption because I was adopted at the age of three months and have 30 years of personal experience of uh, of being such. And um, I talked about the YouTube channel that I had previously started about my adoption experiences, the HuffPost article that I had written in my blog and kind of the viewership on there and sat down. And so afterwards I was talking to one of the other fellows and we were just, I was just like, oh my gosh, that exercise was brutal. Like I just felt so unqualified compared to everyone else. And she told me, well, that's funny because that's how I felt when I heard you speak. And it just like, I, like it kind of, I'm, I didn't even know how to react because it was the first time that someone had kind of affirmed me as an expert. And um, 
saw me in a way that I didn't see myself. So it was pretty, pretty uh, eye-opening that even with a very specific kind of like weird expertise, like that might even have a bigger impact because you're not competing in this field where everyone is an expert in that. It's something that like not a lot of people even know about or are aware about. And so I kind of just embraced that. And a lot of the things that I wrote, you know, I wrote some stuff about just being an Asian American and representation and, you know, growing up in a white family. But my adoption, I used it as a lens to connect it to bigger issues. So, um, when the family separation started happening at the border, I wrote a piece on um, the attachment um, issues and abandonment that happens when an infant separated from their mother because I knew a lot of the research as an adoptee, what happens um, when you're taken from your, your biological mother um, at a young age and how that trauma kind of compounds over time. And then um, uh, uh, abortion became a very, uh, widely discussed and debated topic around that time and I kept seeing people saying you know, using adoption as like an alternative like oh but there's so many babies that you know could be adopted and there's so many families that can't have kids like why would you abort a baby that you know you could just like give up for adoption and so that's when I like <laughs> it was actually right but I was in the car I got to this conference early um, that I was photographing. I was sitting in my car, like eating McDonald's for breakfast and like furiously typing on my laptop because I was like reading things on Twitter that Candace Owens had tweeted something that pissed me off. So I started writing, Aww. sent it over to my mentor editor. And I mean, that one, I was saying some pretty controversial things. Obviously, it was such a hot topic. And we pitched it to several uh, editors that didn't weren't interested. And I decided to reached back out to the HuffPost editor because I knew she was an adoptive parent, um, wanted to send her adoptive voices and kind of just like on a whim sent it over. The response she gave me was like, thank you for writing this. I've been wanting to um, publish something on this topic, but no one has had such a personal like angle to it. Um, and so she published that one. And it was interesting because my mentor editor told me like, before we send this, like, just know like you might get death threats from this. Like this isn't just like a regular, like, oh, you're so ungrateful. Like people, this is life and death to people. Um, and uh, something they teach us with the op-ed project is if you say something of consequence, there may be consequences. Um, the, alternate, the alternative to that is to be inconsequential. So that was always in the back of my mind. I know if I say this, it could, uh, you know, cause some pushback, but, that just means that it was all that more important to put out there. Um, so that was, that was kind of the, I would say like the pinnacle of my fellowship. Um, but so I was having these successes along the way. Um, and I was in the room with, uh, like we had um, convenings every month and we would go around and talk about our experience pitching. And I saw a lot of my fellow fellows um, who were feeling discouraged or who were getting rejections or who, weren't getting feedback from editors, weren't getting published. Um, you know, people that were executive directors and CEOs were being told, well, if you don't have a PhD on this topic, I can't publish you. Like, because to them, that was expertise. Um, and then the moment that really shifted everything for me was when we were in a room with a local um, editor of an opinion section for one of our, um, I would say, primary newspapers in the <laughs> Dallas Fort Worth area and we did kind of a live pitch thing because I think you know we were all getting discouraged not getting published like on a national level but we were like we can at least you know have our voices heard on the local level and we went around and we started pitching our ideas and the general response was you know our subscriber base is middle class white men and so like unless you can kind of rewrite or change your focus to appeal to that demographic it's very unlikely that i'll be able to publish you and uh so i let that sink in and i kind of looked around the room at all of these incredible women who were being told that their voices didn't have a place at, at in our paper um, or that they weren't expert enough and i was like well if 
you know, if these women can't get published, um, there's no hope for the rest of us. Like, I don't know what, like, what else we could do. Like, we've got people with PhDs. We've got people that are, like, at the top of their industry. Uh, and then I, I thought about it, and I was like, I know that, you know, from working with bloggers, I've helped them build websites and seen their following and their impact grow, like, exponentially. Um, I was like, I know that it's possible to do this um, in a different way. And so I, uh, I bought a domain <laughs> on our lunch break because we're not supposed to, we weren't supposed to be on our computers during the, during the fellowship convening. So during our lunch break, I bought a domain, uh, picked out a theme, went home that night and uh, st stood up a website, um, <laughs> uh, which became visible. And um, I just kind of like sent an email like out to the group and I'm like, well, you guys, if you're not like getting any luck um, publishing your pieces, like I'd love to publish you on this new site that I created. Um, and, you know, one of the op-ed project people wrote back and she's like, you just created your own news outlet, Stephanie. <laughs> like, <laughs> like way to like bury the lead here. Um, and so it started out with like some of their pieces, some of my own personal ones, but, uh, you know, from my time working at Big Thought, Young People's Voices was like, very um, much a focus for me. And so working with um, partners like Out Loud, can, um, Jeffrey Moffat and Allison Caldwell to get high school and college voices and to help them start seeing themselves as experts in their personal lived experiences and kind of just grew from there. And it's, uh, it's crazy that it's been over a year now that it's been up and running, but um, I'm, it's just like my, I'm, it's my passion project. I, I just, I, I wake up and I look at it and I just kind of refresh it. And I'm, I just love looking at the names and the, the bios of everyone that's, that's written something for it. It just feels like I've carved out a little space for like people that might not have had a profile online like that before. So um, that's the, you know, op-ed project again, I've learned so much from them. They ask us, you know, what legacy do you want to leave? And I feel like visible is my legacy, you know, and it's less about like my words and more about that I built some some place where other people's words could live. And um, that that the why you do what you do um, and everything that I learned from Op-Ed Project, Visible Magazine is is the embodiment of that. Well, Stephanie, I want to let you know that you have a much larger legacy than that, too. <laughs> um, like, I can personally attest that you continue to inspire me to put my voice out there, even when I'm most afraid of what the feedback will be. You inspired me to start my own website um, called The Non-Threatening Black Girl to put out my own words about what's going on in the world. Um, you inspired me to do this podcast because there's voices that need to be heard. So your legacy is much bigger than just visible. I just want you to know me, that. You're making me tear up. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't want to make you cry, but I just wanted to let you know that, that you are such a big part of so many people's lives and inspiration for them to keep going when they feel as though they are not heard. Um, you are absolutely amazing because of Thank that. You. Like, I, I, I haven't told y'all this story, but I met Stephanie, <laughs> I guess, a little over a year ago. Um, she came, actually, no, a couple years ago. I forgot that where I originally met. <laughs> yeah, <you. laughs> that's where I thought we were going. <laughs> I totally forgot about that for a second. I'll so go there. <laughs> I actually interviewed for a job at Big Thought, and I would have gotten to work with Stephanie, and she was absolutely amazing. And I was, but I was actually on my way out and couldn't tell you that in the room. <laughs> and it was like I was like, darn, like I would love to work with someone like that, but I had already given my notice. So, <laughs> so that was the first time she inspired me, and then the second time is that I got to run into her again. Um, I'm a part of this fellowship that's for women of color in Texas, and one of our meetings was about using our voices in different ways. And Stephanie came and taught a um, op-ed session. 
so how do you write an op-ed? And told us about her story. And I was like, oh my God, she's so amazing. She's so wonderful. And I'm like, I want to be like her when I grow up. And I'm like, I don't even know where to start to be like her when I grow up. So I started writing LinkedIn articles. I actually took the one of the pieces of advice she gave me was just to use the platforms you already have and start writing. So I started writing LinkedIn articles and all of a sudden they picked up so much traction. I was like, why are people reading what I wrote? <laughs> I'm like, I was getting over a thousand views of an article. And I was like, I'm just this little nobody in Dallas. Why do people care what I'm talking about? And then I was like, I should put this somewhere else where people can like see my voice on other things too that I don't feel much would be appropriate for maybe professional <laughs> um, websites like LinkedIn. So I created the non-starting black girl website at the beginning of the pandemic this year, actually, I sat down and I was like, I'm creating a website. So that day I created a website for myself. It's easier than people think. Like once you kind of put your mind to it, you just do it. It really is. And like, I was so excited that I created it. And mm -hmm. I was like sending it out to people that I was like, you have to see what I created. Cause I was just so proud that I did it. And then She's inspired me to take a thought leadership class. That's how I ended up um, getting to the point where this was created because all because of Stephanie, like I just want y'all to know that like <laughs> she is amazing uh -huh. and like like she just I enjoy working with her and I enjoy getting to listen to her and watch her journey because she inspires me that like there's hope for the rest of us <laughs> to figure <laughs> <Right>. this out. <laughs> right. Because like that's the importance of representation. If you don't see it being done, if you don't see that it's possible it's hard to imagine that when our reality is like telling us like we don't belong you know and so the more that we can do to show examples and to highlight examples of people doing it and making it it you know it could inspire like a whole generation after us exactly okay so back to the questions after that <laughs> okay um, <laughs> um so now that you have begun accomplishing the things that you dreamed of when you were in college <laughs> what's your biggest fear about becoming what you wanted to be you're now a director at a nonprofit, creating mm -hmm. massive change in the region i know that can be terrifying <laughs> yeah i i think so before it was like can i do this can i get to this level where i can make an impact and now it's this like paralyzing fear of saying the wrong thing doing the wrong thing, like misusing this opportunity, like having this platform and this audience and misleading them based on my ignorance or um, kind of my personal flaws. Uh, so it's, you know, before I would just kind of say things like for the heck of it, cause I was like, no one's gonna read it. But now I have to be very intentional and like, and uh, you know, with, it's like, spider-man with great power comes great responsibility um when you have the platform and you can you have that potential like what are you going to do with it and are you going to waste it are you going to actually cause more harm so i just i get in my head and you know yeah i i would say the the fear is like once you've reached a level where you can make a difference how do you make the right difference mm -hmm. no that so. makes complete sense mm -hmm. Um, so when you're faced with feeling like you're not qualified to do something, mm -hmm. what internal talk do you do? Like okay. what, what, how, what is your process of getting mm -hmm. over that hurdle? Um, mine's, mine's pretty standard. Um, I, I've found that this has worked for me. Um, and it's the op-ed project asked us to answer the question, why do you do what you do? And my answer to that was because it matters to someone. Um, in my head, I was thinking it matters to the young transracial adoptee who's growing up in a bubble like South Lake who doesn't see themselves. Like it matters for them to hear someone like me or to see someone like the people that are publishing on Visible or the people whose websites I help build. Um, and so every time I get that naggy feeling like, you know, you're not qualified to do this. I'm qualified, I would have been qualified enough to have helped my younger self. Like, I know what I needed back then. So the least I can do is like, do what I'm doing, knowing that at least one person out there, you know, I might not like change the minds of like the masses, but there's probably someone out there who will see something that I wrote and it will make them feel less alone in the world. 
Um, and so I think about it as like, you don't need to be this like expert that's going to be on CNN and be interviewed. Like you just need to get your message out to the person, that one person who needs to hear it. And so when I think about it on like a more like personal and kind of micro level, then I'm able to get over that kind of the ego, the <laughs> like it's more, you know, it goes back to the why and the person that I'm supposed to be helping and out of my head. <laughs> no, that's really smart. I think definitely thinking about the bigger picture and getting out of your head is very important mm -hmm. for kind of getting over that. Am I qualified to do that moment? Mm -hmm. Um, what tips would you give to someone outside of really focusing on the why yeah. um, for someone who feels like they're not qualified? To surround yourself with um, cheerleaders who, when you get stuck in your head and you get in that loop, will be like, you're crazy. Like, <laughs> you're like way qualified to do this. I have the best group of girlfriends. Um, my friends, Sevi, Denise, and Valerie, um, I met through blogging years ago, but we were like the bloggers that were like woke <laughs> and like realized that blogging was not like kind of the world we wanted to, you know, live in for the rest of our lives. And we have a group thread. We talk every day, almost throughout the day. Um, and just build each other up and we'll say like hey can i run this by you guys or like send screenshots of a tweet that we posted to make sure it was okay and like having those voices um kind of reminding you that you're you're doing the right thing you're making the difference and like they're they're women who like i respect like they are my heroes and so like their their opinions and their words matter to me so much uh, so I would say surround yourself with people that are like-minded, who will call you out if you say something wrong or are willing to work work with you and help you through kind of obstacles, but also that, you know, just remind you that you're on the right path. Um, and then um, reading, like reading stuff on adoption has really helped me realize I knew more than I thought I did. I'm learning obviously new things, but also my personal experiences can actually confirm a lot of the data. And so not forgetting that everything that we've gone through in our lives, like there's a reason for it. And if you do the research, a lot of times you'll probably see like where your life has kind of mirrored some of the things that they're talking about in that research and finding ways to connect it. Um, and just remembering that expertise isn't always the PhD. It's not like, um the job title or even the organization you're working at it's you know what you know in your in your guts and your your heart because of what you've been through in life yeah no that's really great advice honestly like that was <laughs> ground shaking out i'm gonna take that one back <laughs> well because i mean for example like you could probably read an article about like the data of like black women working in the nonprofit world and you know one out of whatever but you know that from like working in it and living it every day like you are an expert on what's being talked about because you know it firsthand um and that's kind of how it's been for me i'm like yeah um adoptees are four times more likely to attempt suicide than non-adopted people and like i went i struggle with depression and mental health growing up because i I didn't have anyone that understood me. I used to, I used to self-mutilate in high school. And so like mm. those numbers mean something very deeply personal to me. Um, and I try to incorporate the numbers, but also just like, remember, like, I know that because I lived it. Yeah, no, that's really important to remember. Um, so last question, and then we'll leave it to you to add anything else you want to add. Um, is there any specific advice that you would give to aspiring writers who want to get published? Read, um, but more specifically, read where you want to be published. So um, for different outlets, there's obviously different requirements. You can read the submission guidelines. Some of them have word counts, um, but read for the tone and the style. Follow the Twitter pages of the editors that represent the, the opinion um, sections of the publications you want to be published in. Um, HuffPost Personal, for example, you know, op-ed project, the standard op-ed, it's not as personal. It's more data-driven and argument and evidence-based. Um, and But HuffPost Personal, it's 
it is first person. It is like deeply like your experience and it's longer. It, it was like 11 to 1100 to 1300 words versus like a standard op-ed is around, you know, maybe 600 to 800. Um, so even if your style doesn't necessarily fit like the New York Times or the Dallas Morning News, like there is a place for you for first person stuff. Um, Vox first person is personal. Um, if your experience is, um, if you're younger and your experience is more on like the millennial experience, like Teen Vogue or Cosmopolitan or Glamour um, are good outlets. So I just recommend like figuring out like where your tone and style fits best um, and read lots of articles of people who've been published before. So, you know, when you pitch, you can say, you know, I really feel like Teen Vogue readers would, you know, relate to this. Um, and then practice, which I'm, I'm not practicing what I preach. Um, I, I would like to write for like a consistent amount of time every day. And I know people that schedule time like in the mornings or late at night and they write every day. Um, I always say that I'm gonna do that. And then, you know, things like a pandemic and like, you know, just the, uh, yeah, uh, you know, things happen, <laughs> personal <laughs> life. Um, yeah, going through a divorce in the middle of a pandemic while oh. also like mentoring people in a writing fellowship and um, being at the crux of like police brutality, like happening in the world. Uh, so I have not been writing every day, but I definitely recommend writing regularly, even if you're not writing a particular piece. That's why I love having my blog because sometimes I'll just sit down and be like, I wrote a piece I was going to write about like the process of uh, using self-tanner because I, like, I was like, okay, I'm tired of all the heavy like stuff in the world. I'm just going to go back to my like lifestyle, fashion and beauty content. And then I was sitting there and I'm like, I'm such a fraud. I don't know. Why am I pretending like everything is normal and like the world is falling apart and I'm like super sad. And I just wrote about that. And like, sometimes you don't even know what you need to get out until you actually like sit down and put pen to paper, or your fingers on the keyboard. Um, and like, have like reward yourself. So like my writing time when I write, like I, I make my bulletproof coffee and I like light a candle and it's my kind of my time that I've carved out to write. And I don't know. And the more you put yourself out there, the more you get feedback from people. Like even if it's something on my own blog and it's not a HuffPost article, I'll get messages from someone that says like, this helped me like figure out how to talk to my family about the things that I was feeling. And like, again, you just never know what impact it'll do unless you put it out there. You have to kind of risk that in order to, to reach the people that are waiting for it. Yeah, that's so true. And like, I just appreciate you being the champion that you are for all writers. You're like, don't care who what you're writing about don't care anything just write just, just write, write it all and <laughs> put it out there and like I told you guys at the um, workshop medium is a great um a great outlet if you don't have the resources or the time to make your own site like start writing really long posts on Facebook start you know um posting on LinkedIn medium um because you just like never know what can get you know and where it can go like one one blog post that I did about the Breakfast with Dads um, event at Dade, I tweeted it and then a reporter from Washington Post saw it. And so like you just like, again, if you don't tweet it, if you don't put it out there, like it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a chance to get beyond your head. That's so true. Um, you are just so inspiring. Sorry, I'm lost for words because... <laughs> Every time I talk to you, I, I'm like, I don't, I'm not qualified to talk to her. No. <laughs> She's amazing. But look at that. Once again, I'm asking oh. myself, am I qualified to do this? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll end with, like, I have a, a similar kind of feeling that I think might help. Um, I felt very similarly towards Michelle Kinder. Like, she was my, like, uh, like, I'm not even qualified for her to follow me on Twitter. Like, let alone, like, retweet or respond to something. Well, come to find out from a friend that was in the op-ed project, like application process, Michelle Kinder was the one who nominated me because That's she crazy. read a blog post that I wrote about being an INFJ, the MBTI, the Myers-Briggs. Um, and she read that, started following and reading my writing. I had no idea she even knew who I was. And she was the one who nominated me to do that. 
so this whole time that I was thinking like I can't like I'll never like compare to Michelle she was the one that believed in my voice enough to to suggest me to the op-ed project that's so powerful right there <laughs> is that you never know who is reading your work mm -hmm. and who is elevating you in spaces you didn't even know existed mm -hmm. um so that's why it's so important to continue to put your voice out there and I think mm -hmm. that's the best note to end on honestly like you never know who will be impacted you never know who is uplifting you you never know so you just have to do it just keep doing it <laughs> well thank you so much for joining us today I'm so fangirling over here that I, I got to interview you honestly um but thank you so so much you were absolutely amazing I mean, if Stephanie's interview didn't inspire you to change the world, I don't know what will. Well, thank you all for joining me for my first episode of Am I Qualified to Do This? I hope you tune in next week. It will always come out on Wednesdays at noon. Um, and we'll play a little fun game on uh, my social media to see if you guys can guess who my next guest is. But until then, remember, your hell no should definitely be a hell yes, because if not you, then who?